In episode 59 of Design EDU Today, Christopher Cash Dollar, principal of Cash Dollar Design, joins us to discuss a wide array of topics. The conversation starts off with a discussion on ways to better prepare students for careers as freelance designers, such as working with popular CMS templates, the ubiquitous need for writing skills to persuasively promote your work, and the need for internships to augment classroom learning. Along the way, Chris also discusses where designing micro-interactions fits into the overall design process and the fundamental differences between solo designer software programs like Illustrator and Photoshop and collaboration-based programs like Envision and Sketch that reflect how the industry operates today. Hello, and welcome to Design EDU Today, the bi-weekly podcast series discussing the necessary competencies to be a successful designer in a contemporary, screen-based, interactive world. I am your host, Gary Rosance, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Today's guest is Christopher Cashdollar. Chris is a multidisciplinary trained graphic designer and the principal of Cash Dollar Design, a Philadelphia-based design strategy consultancy. For almost 20 years, Chris has helped clients such as Ben & Jerry's, Harvard University, Viacom, Monotype Imaging, Northwestern Mutual, LG Mobile, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, and Zappos.com conceptualize and craft beautiful, user-centric digital experiences that deliver results. You can find him tweeting sporadically about design and UX-related topics at CCashDollar. All right. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Gary. Thanks for having me. Well, actually, you're, you're hosting <laughs> me this time. I am in Chris's studio in Philadelphia because I got the bright idea to, to drive to Allentown to buy a chair. Uh, a little bit more than the audience needed to know. So um, before I jump into my, my first question, I just wanted to let the, the listeners know that you have an interview on the big web show with um, Jeffrey Zeldman. Everybody should check that out first because it's it kind of ties in, but also it's a really great um, example of you know what modern web design looks like from start to finish, and they cover the fonts.com um, redesign. So check that episode out, and also for the um, you know education portion of it that you know they talked about in the beginning. All right, so in episode forty-seven, my guest uh, Lauren Miranda. Uh, talked about teaching students how to make WordPress templates and preparing them for freelance work. So ever since that episode, I've been thinking more about freelance as a career path. Um, just like you would be working at an agency or you'd be working at an in-house team. Um, since you've done agency and you've done freelances full-time, can you kind of compare and contrast the two? Sure. I, and I, and in some respects, I don't think they're very different. Um, my experience has been 
situationally where I have in some respects kind of mimicked what an agency is like in the services I provide, but also conversely, I've also joined other agencies as a freelancer to kind of augment their teams and expand their ability to service their clients. So while I've, you know, I emulate a lot of what an agency provides in my own practice, I also am totally happy with kind of jumping aboard and joining a team and, you know, kind of being part of somebody else's agency in order to kind of, you know, uh, round out my own abilities to, to make money and, and keep, keep in business. Okay. So I cannot speak for every design educator in this one. This is my own personally, how I approach the classroom and I approach teaching design with the idea that my students are going to get a job at a graphic design firm. I've never ever until, you know, this episode thought about when you go to work at a in-house firm, you're, you're working with an existing brand. That's different than how I teach design because I'm teaching design from scratch. So, and then, you know, the, the freelance work is also, I don't, I, I, it's not different. It's not as different from the agency as it is for maybe the in-house, but then there's the other intangibles, um, that you need that you get at a firm. Like, so if you go to the firm, you're going to learn how to work with a client. When you go to a firm, you're going to learn how to work, not just in teams, because we can, we do that in the classroom. We work in teams, but we don't work in teams with different disciplines. So, and so that's where I, I, like the impetus for like me, like asking that question. So like, is there, if there any really kind of differences? I don't think I would have had the confidence to be a freelancer if I didn't start out with many years of uh, experience working inside of agencies. Uh, what that provided me was the opportunity to see all the gears, see all the components, uh, understand how projects are managed, understand how projects are budgeted, how you know you come to some sort of number, how you work with the client to figure out what that number is, how you meet deadlines, how you collaborate with other disciplines. Uh, you know, the design education I had at Drexel uh, didn't, didn't, you know, kind of hint upon that. Um, but what they did have, though, is they had the cooperative education program, which um, at the time, you know, was putting uh, their students into two different, um, you know, real work working situations. So I had that kind of like early taste of like, whoa, okay, this is how, how the magic happens in the real world. And uh, that kind of like drove my desire to, to look for those type of, um, you know, opportunities once I got into the workforce. Um, but all that, you know, even with all that, you know, 15 years plus of working for agencies, that moment I stepped out and became a freelancer, I was still scared to death. So, so there's a lot you can learn, but until you start to actually do it yourself, and understand all the different pieces and parts that go into, you know, being your own boss, so to speak. Um, it's terrifying. Again, it's that whole idea of you don't know what you don't know. And so I guess my goal as an educator is like, I don't, I want them to know what they don't know. If I can just make them aware of it, I think I've done my job. Um, so in the, in that big web show, you did talk about Drexel a little bit. And I'm curious because I, in that episode, you also kind of mentioned that you think that there are other 
organ, other academic institutions that are kind of mimicking that model. I personally don't know of any. So I'm curious, how did the, how did, how did it, like, what was like, like logistically one semester you're taking classes, next semester you're doing X. Is that like logistically, how did that work? So they, and did they find you the internship or did you have to find it? It's a, uh, it's a little bit more complex than that. Um, <laughs> but at the most part, it's a pretty well-run machine there. Um, so Drexel is based on a quarter system. So once you are kind of in the quarter system process, um, you're either taking class or you're on co-op. And if, if my memory serves me correctly, there's really no summers off anymore. Uh, so what would happen is that you would reach a, a point in your, your educational journey there. I think it's sophomore year, might be junior year now. Um, and you, would, you knew that you were going to be going on co-op the next six months or whatever that um, phase was going to be, two quarters worth, uh, I believe. And so you would work with your department to uh, submit applications for a list of co-op opportunities that already had kind of approached the school. Okay. Often, a lot of the co-op employers were repeat employers. One co-op comes in, the next one comes in after that. Um, so they would often be, you know, kind of uh, opportunities that you could talk to people about and find out more information. Like, hey, this is what this opportunity is like. But you also had the opportunity as a, as a student to kind of go out and find your own. So you don't have to kind of prescribe to necessarily what was just being offered to you. Uh, for example, when I was the um, design director and VP of design at Happy Cog, we had um, a co-op um, who came to us and they were like, hey, do you do co-op? And we're like, I don't know, do we? <laughs> sure, let's try this out. And uh, it ended up being a great great uh, relationship, you know, working relationship for them and us as well. So, you know, it's, it puts the impetus back on the student to say, you know what? Um, if I'm hungry and I'm looking for opportunities out there, I can go out there and pursue them and it becomes right, you know, part and parcel with part of your education. Yeah. The only, I mean, the only thing that I can't wrap my head around and I, I should at some point maybe actually call Drexel and see if they'd even talk to me about it, um, be on this show. But the one thing that I can't wrap my head around and scares the bejesus out of me is making something a requirement, like an internship, a co-op, however you want to frame it, just go out there and, and work with a real professional to learn you got a lot of students. That's a lot of people you have to find work for. It's true. And so that part always, I like, I, anyway, I'm going to have to pick their brain about it, <laughs> see if they're willing to share. Um, okay. So I'm going to assume that, um, 99% of existing four-year graphic design programs are geared towards preparing students for a career path at an agency or firm. What kind of additional training do students need for a career in freelance design uh, from their graphic design professors that they currently aren't getting that you're not, you know, that you're not seeing? Ooh, that's, that's a, that's a tough one. <clears throat> um, I have some thoughts on this, some opinions on this, but awesome. I, it's <laughs> when I think back to my education and then I also think back to when I was adjunct at Drexel, I did adjuncting there for about five or six years or something. Um, one of the things I, I really like to do when I was teaching, I would like to bring the real, I see real world, the, the client work I was doing back into the classroom. Um, so I would kind of take a few moments at each class, the beginning of each class to kind of do a little show and tell. Like here's literally what I was working on today before I came into class tonight. Here's some of the things that I struggled with. There's some of the things that 
um, you know, the client's struggling with. Here's some of the things I'm struggling to communicate to them. Here's some of the things I had to learn in order to do this work. So I don't remember a lot of that when I was in school. Um, and I think what I find rewarding and at least what I think the students found rewarding also was it was detaching the theoretical, um, in 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 applying the practical, um, in a way that they could understand that, you know, I'm not just somebody who's coming in and, and talking design theory. I'm, I might be talking something uh, about something that's theoretical, but then I'm showing them a practical reality of what what's actually happening. And to me, you know, that's not necessarily something I could carve out in curriculum, but it was something that I think it should be part of all conversations um, because it starts to set foundation for the student that I I see this person. They, they know that they're out there trying to service a client. They're trying to solve problems. And they don't necessarily always know the right answer to everything. And you have to kind of work through it. So that's kind of a long way of saying, um, I think the biggest thing missing for me in, in education is the constant learning. You need to kind of establish in the students that learning doesn't stop when you yeah. you leave the classroom, doesn't stop when you leave the university, doesn't stop when you get the degree. You're always going to be learning and struggling and fighting and scrapping in this industry. And if the second you think you've learned it all, something else is going to come out and it's going to kind of supersede everything you've, you know, kind of feel comfortable with at that point. Um, and that goes for, you know, design skills, technology it takes to service your clients, whatever. Um, learning how to just be a better communicator, you know, all those things kind of, you know, kind of roll up into the ball of what it's like to be a modern designer. Yeah. And I think that's, um, something that I'm going to speak only to myself on this one, but when I think of like the term practice, you're a practicing designer. Well, I stopped and thought about my practice. I'm a practicing educator. What I do is I practice on how the best way to deliver content. So it's been a long time since I've worked at an this firm. It's been a long time since I've done freelance work in a high stakes environment. So there's that practical knowledge that I don't have. I know how to deliver content to us, you know, and I know how to organize this stuff. So, you know, skills build upon skills, but I, so I think that practice is, and then if you want to even kind of like theorize about the industry a little bit more, we're talking like an industry that, you know, interactive design, how it's, it's a fairly young industry. Most designers who are educators who are teaching interactive design are probably self-taught. So there's no, you know, there's no best practices. <laughs> so I, th- I think we're, f- uh, f- I think we're dealing with all of that kind of stuff now. So I guess I'm looking for like the magic bullet. It's like, how can I introduce, you know, like the idea of client work and working with a client when the fact that they don't even have the ability to produce a website for a client, because all they can do is the front, you know, the visual design of it, not the, <laughs> it's, it's a, I understand that struggle. Yeah. Um, the thing that I like to tell designers and I even have to kind of tell it to myself from time to time is a good mantra because it's easy to get overwhelmed. Like, Oh my gosh, I feel like I need to know this or I need to know that I need to be able to produce this type of work. The biggest thing that a designer can do right now, the smartest thing they can do is make sure that in the work they do, it demonstrates design intent. So when we look at the landscape now of all these new interface design tools that are coming out, prototyping tools, and, and you know, tomorrow there'll be another one. 
these are all tools for designers to demonstrate design intent. Yes. They are not production tools. They're not tools that are going to kick out production level code that is going to be the live website. And the longer I work in this industry, the more I see that there is still value in the designer really strongly and purposely communicating what they're essentially trying to solve and making sure that they're doing the best job possible they can. That means, you know, I don't, I don't expect designers to have to be able to ship production level code. I would struggle to do that myself. I mean, I can build a rudimentary website, but you know, somebody who actually writes code for a living is going to look at that and be like, what are you doing? Um, I think that's, that's the most important thing to remember. You need to be able to understand the technologies. You need to understand, you know, what, how these things are happening, but your job as the designer really is to make sure that, you know, the vision is correct. You're using the tools you have available to communicate the vision. You ensure that your client or whoever you're doing the work for understands what has to be, um, you know, what essentially what you're creating, but you're also communicating to your potentially your teammates or somebody else who might be working with, um, who essentially has to maybe bring this to life or also sell it to somebody else. Yeah. Okay. So, um, back a little bit to more to that, to the freelance kind of, um, train of thought though there's a lot of work out there for designers to build websites using a cms like squarespace or wordpress however i'm I'm not sure what i think about teaching students to manipulate existing templates for a variety of reasons such as you know they're building on top of another person's design it's not really their own instead of learning like you know and the trade-off to that is if you're teaching that you're not teaching the fundamentals of graphic design um and then there's the learning curve of the CMS templating language because, you know, just to be able to design the visual, they have to be able to do both. So as a freelance designer, agency designer, and adjunct professor, where do you kind of stand on that whole spectrum? To me, you know, all these um, kind of quick editable CMSs, they're all tools. They're all things we can we can turn to uh, in, in considering how we're going to solve a problem for a client. So either in the classroom or out in the the world, you know, you have these things available to you, which is amazing. You think about it these days. That said, you know, I don't think any of these things should be considered good or bad. I think it's all the right tool for the right job. So, for example, I have a, a client that I'm just wrapping up a project with who wanted to get a, a new blog out to the world. And then with this blog came a kind of branding package, identity design. Mm -hmm. It didn't make sense for myself to try and build something from scratch or design something from scratch when it came to the fact that this person needed a vehicle to get their writing out into the world. So what I did is I kind of partnered with a a developer who I knew could help me out. Mm -hmm. And we collaboratively picked a a template we knew we could edit, malleable enough to, to do what we needed to do. And from there, that's where the design effort started. So for me, that was all I needed. I didn't need to kind of, you know, rebuild something from nothing in order to solve the problem. We, we had these tools available. We were able to start with that. And that saved the client a lot of money, saved me a lot of time. And we still got out of this, you know, what we needed to do in order to solve the problem. 
So somebody might say, and that that's cheating. I don't, I don't understand why it would be, um, you know, it's, it's available to us and this is how we kind of solve the problem. Um, so that doesn't, to me, that doesn't mean, um, you know, I can't design a blog from scratch, something unique and, and creative that would be, you know, also solving the problem, but for the business constraints of the problem we're trying to solve, that's, you know, what we had to do. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, it, it kind of, well, it, it helped me reframe it in a way that makes sense to me because, uh, you know, like students were using like font awesome and, and using pre-existing icon sets. And I was like, oh, you know, I kind of like, it's like, there is a time and place for those. And it, and it wasn't, somehow it, it popped into my head that like, okay, when you present to the client, you can say, this is, if you want custom icons, it's going to cost this. If you don't want custom icons, we will use this set. And it's just now, like you said, it's a, a business decision. So I can therefore wrap my head around the uh, Squarespace stuff. Um, not Squarespace, but using an existing template, it's again, it's like using existing icon sets. It's a business decision. It's not um, inherently good or bad. It's just a business decision where it works best for you. So there's, so I mentioned earlier in-house where if you're working at in-house, you're always working with kind of an existing brand with existing standards. I, it just literally popped into my head just now that using somebody else's WordPress template is the same exact thing. You're starting with an existing framework of stuff that you have to build upon. Um, and so I think that's a, you know, that's a good exercise too. So. You can do a lot with a little bit of knowledge with uh, somebody else's WordPress theme, uh, with you know the way um, these things are built. And I've spent some time in WordPress lately on this project um, that I just mentioned. You know, we can we can push and pull these things in ways and manipulate them in ways that you know, ultimately, you know, if you look at what we end up delivering for our client and the original theme we started with, it, there's not a lot of similarities other than the fact that they're basically a blog and a blog type structure for the paid page layouts. So there's a lot of room, I think, for for experimentation and using these tools as kind of a jumping off point and learning and understanding what you can do yeah. to change them. I think that's probably more important than being the person who gets in under the, the hood and, you know, really manipulates the, the template itself. Um, okay. So, like, you know, is it's a hypothetical classroom exercise instead of like going through like, um, you know, getting like a bare bones WordPress starter theme thing where you kind of are working with the PHP behind there and, and tying it into the CMS. I mean, it's better off to just take, find one of those templates that's like modular build where you can go back in through like their, their editor. They have like a visual editor, some of them, don't they now at this point? So those would be kind of a decent exercise if, I don't know where I'd put it, but it's worth, it's a worthwhile exercise. I, I have opinions on this, you yeah. know, and it's, and everyone's going to kind of come around this idea a different way. Personally, I don't think in the classroom we should be teaching code. Yeah. If we're, if this is designed education, let's, let's stay away from that. Um, let's teach the layout theory. Let's teach the the interaction backgrounds. Let's teach the ability to understand, you know, uh, typographic hierarchies and and the methods and the the microsystems that come together to create a a strong interactive screen design. Mm -hmm. 
back to my earlier point, you know, continuing learning um, beyond the classroom. To me, it's up to the students to understand the technology in their own time. Um, back back in the old days <laughs> when we were um, doing a layout uh, class and uh, we had to use Quark Express to, to do the layout, we didn't take time in the classroom to learn Quark Express. The Our professors were like, that's just the vehicle we're going to use. You take the time to figure out how to solve the, the technology side or learn the software to deliver what you need to do. And in many ways, I, I feel like that's where we're at now in, with, with screen design. There is so much information out there, good information, a Google query away for you. Yep. And if you don't understand that, if you don't know that that's right there for you, um, and we end up taking time in the classroom to, you know, have to write CSS or whatever. I think that's that's a missed opportunity. I think we should be really talking about uh, larger issues, larger discussions about about screen design, interaction design, uh, and and keep the keep the the noodling in the <laughs> in the uh, the code editors to to uh, outside the classroom. Yeah. So. Uh um, I have two questions. Hopefully I remember both. I should write this down. Um, uh, the first one is interactive design. You kind of, or interactions, you, could you talk a little bit more about that? Like define that because I have a follow up on that. And the other one is just kind of more of just a statement about like, yeah, the, the software, I, I have no idea why there's a class in almost every program that learn the creative suite. Cause, uh, you just, you should learn. I learned it on my own. Everybody should just learn it. On, I make my students learn it on their own. I was like, okay, you're, you're going to be using, you can either use sketch, you can use XD, or if you sign up early, you can use envision studio and figure it out. I'll help. But the one pro but there's the problem with that. The one problem is like you said, you can Google anything. And so they do. So they, okay, I draw a box. I got what I needed to, and I Google this. Okay. This is how I, this is one way I can do this. So what they're kind of missing from the software then is like the way to use it as a time saver. So they're not setting up styles. They're not setting up all those things that can save them time in the future because they're just, you know, learning how to get what they need at that one second. So I think that that's a that's something that I've been thinking of more and more about lately is like okay how do I get them to be better more efficient users of the tool but at the same time not be the one teaching the tool that's struggle and that's a it's a <laughs> struggle that extends beyond the classroom too um, in the professional setting um, I've seen both sides of that uh, so I'd love sketch I'm like I'm all in <laughs> um, in the past few years I've, I've been using it almost exclusively and really loved kind of the built-in powerful methods in which you can establish a front-end style maintain it edit it and uh, you know really build off of it uh, that said I've also worked with people who have used sketch and they don't understand that they just mm -hmm. think it's the the immediate way to very quickly mock up something and they don't understand what is baked into this tool that allows you to really kind of, and I guess, you know, it's, it's kind of like the root system of a really powerful, strong tree. Um, the tree is beautiful the tree grows well, but it's really because it has such a strong base underneath it. Um, and it's providing that structure. It's providing that, that ability to, 
um, kind of maintain and, and continue growing. That's that's what Sketch provides underneath yeah. underneath that in in that interface. That ability to create symbols and the overrides and the nesting of symbols and all these things you can do um, to establish strong type typography, strong s symbols, strong modules. It's kind of the you know it's to do that almost kind of atomic design level yeah. um, structuring. It's all right there. Um, so. I had a point and I was going somewhere, but the, I think the thinking is that, you know, these, this is what we have now. Um, you, to not address that in a classroom might be a disservice to the students because I think it's inherently part of what makes Sketch successful is because you cannot introduce a tool like this and not understand or not communicate to students that this is set up for team and enterprise level problem solving. It's not just you noodling mm -hmm. yourself trying to solve a problem for a client. This is really set up for you know the ability to manage full scale enterprise scale design systems. Yeah. And that's the and and so that's exactly it. That's the part I feel like I have to enter I at some point I haven't been doing it, but at some point I feel like I have to like interject and say like no 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 no. We we need to like stop and like this is what it can do. This is how you should approach it. Or I don't know. I have to think through that one. It's like here's what you do. You, you need to kind of do like a spot check on their file. Yes. Like all right, everybody hit pause. Let me see what's in your type palette. Let me see what's in your color palette. What do you got in your symbols? And if they aren't using those aspects of that uh, the tool, then that could be your. Are you kidding? I'm. I struggle <laughs> to get them to name their artboards and layers. And I'm like, how's the developer going to know what? that is unless you tell somebody what that is they're not magical all-knowing beings <laughs> but anyway uh, so the other so back on the interaction design um you kind of mentioned that and i want to flush it out a little more because that's one thing well what do you mean by that, <laughs> that oh gosh term? i don't know um that's a, that's a kind of a big question so what i do on a daily basis is i am trying to bring form to a task usually right um the user needs to accomplish this task and how do i using the tools I have available to me create design intent that solve the problem for that user <clears throat> so that's usually a sequential type of uh, design it's you know this is step one these are the uh, codependence of what that might entail here's what could happen if they do X, Y, or Z, here's what happens with, with this type of information is returned. Uh, I feel like it's my job to often suss out all those potential pitfalls that go along with an interaction and make sure I'm accounting for that in the solution that I'm providing. Uh, so for example, um, the last week I've been working on a, a website design with a really, really robust tool kind of in the center of it. And this tool has a lot of different inputs and a lot of different ways in which the tool can spit out information back to you based on what you've, you've kind of, you know, put into it. And a lot of the things that, a lot of the work that's come out of this is not been necessarily the, the easy flow, not the easiest path. It's all the ancillary little tangents that come off of, of this tool based on these conditions that pile up and so what i've done is i've you know kind of worked with sketch and combined it with envision and i've pieced together kind of a rudimentary prototype that essentially allows you to kind of 
click through and see these scenarios coming to life. And to me, that that is what I would assume in, in at least my world is interaction design. It's, t- it's creating something, creating form, creating a point A to point B uh, structure, and but making sure I take into account all the kind of squiggly spaghetti uh, paths that could also kind of uh, connect those two points. Okay, so the, the reason I asked, and, I, and it's good just to hear your definition, but I was thinking more on a very rudimentary level in mic- micro interactions, animations, um, essentially like how does a page, does it slide in? Does the, you know, how does the menu button drop down? Does it, does it slide in? Does it fade in? All these different kind of like the animations of a website. Um, how do you go about designing them? Cause and I'll outright say, I think we do a terrible job of innovating that stuff. No, <laughs> As, you're right. And this is all part of a designer's ability to communicate intent. So there will obviously be projects in which you can get that detailed uh, and some some um, you might not be able to. But in case where you have that opportunity as a designer, you should take advantage of it. Um, that's, that is often a detail that is left on the wayside and the designers uh, kind of, you know, everything they're accounting for. And often it's just kind of left up to the developer to kind of make those, those decisions. So I think this is where you, you look back at your, your toolbox, what's available to you. And you think about, you know, those kind of small micro interactions, those minor animations that, you know, as designers, we have the opportunity to shape and form and potentially innovate, but you got to spend the time on it. You can't, Unfortunately, you can't just expect to tack it on at the end of a design sprint or a you know, design um, kind of process and hope it goes well. Um, you know, I, I have some friends who kind of focus in this space exclusively and they'll probably tell you the same thing is, you know, interactions, micro interactions, they're not an afterthought. They are kind of, you know, carriers of the brand as much as the font choice. Mm-hmm. You know, how you animate something um, also says something about the brand um, in an interactive situation. So it's very much should be part of the conversation earlier as you know as anything else you do as a designer. So where do you do it then in your ideally because I like you said it's it's one of those tricky things but ideally where would you stick that into the design process from beginning to end? And I'll you know what I'll my dis- what I've been having my students do um, they start off with, uh, an initial client meeting where they'll interview the client to build style tiles. And so then they build their style tiles and then they, you know, show them to the client, get the feedback, and then they jump into element collages. And then, you know, from element collages, they then start like atomic design, like, like where elements, you know, dropping, you know, wire framing and then jump into the mock-up. So assuming that that's like not a horribly out of whack process, <laughs> where would you drop the animations in that? That's a good question. I would probably try to, and this is hypothetical because yeah. I think, you know, we're, we're talking about a perfect situation. Yeah. The, the element collages uh, are, I think, are a perfect spot to kind of do this because this is where you've kind of graduated beyond the initial conversation. And, and I think, you know, the 
the language of design becomes very important then here. <clears throat> um, you've established kind of what is the key characteristics of the design from a language standpoint, and you've brought these things to life visually. Um, style starts to take shape and form. Style is not divorced from interaction, I think, in, in the terms of the way we're talking about it. So these, these animations, these micro-interactions, these are things that can and should be affected by this primary language of design at this point that we've started to define. That said, I think, you know, there's there's always room for um, talking about this stuff earlier. Mm -hmm. um, quite often, we assume there's a sophistication on the client side when it comes to the language of design. And sometimes we also assume that there's just one client that you're talking to. Um, I've worked a lot in higher ed, done a lot of higher ed websites. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and uh, as you know, you know, there's never one person involved. Oh, no. And so how do you communicate design thinking, establish a common design language when you have not just maybe a primary committee, but a secondary committee and a third level committee. And sometimes these committees are made up of different people in different disciplines with completely different understandings of what you're trying to build and, and problems you're trying to solve. So sometimes you need to kind of do a little bit more work up front to come back around and, and maybe fill in the details. So one technique that I've used in the past and I've worked with some other agencies that use it, let's, is to let's maybe think about a little bit more of that total package up front, get the big idea sold earlier mm -hmm. and then come back and fill in the details with maybe some of the information architecture and content level thinking that that you know needs to be kind of um, thought about a little more detail with a little more detail and care so this might mean comping up big beautiful multiple concepts earlier getting them in front of people who need to make decisions earlier see and discuss some of the different feelings that come out of that process you know um, a mood board or a style board and even a style collage, we understand what those are. Mm -hmm. We understand the value they carry. But putting that artifact in front of uh, Dean of Admissions, it's often you're going to be struggling to understand and communicate to them the inherent value of what you're trying, trying to, trying to uh, inform them about. So you have to be very conscious of the artifact you are creating and who you're selling it to. Yeah, no. And so I also love that you mentioned that, you know, if, if we don't do it, the developer will. And I have been harping on my students about that for the first time this semester is like, that is a design decision. If you do not make that design decision, you are leaving it to the developer to make that design decision. They were they trained in that? We don't know. So you are just making a huge guess by not doing it. And so, and it's funny because I actually, I notice with students, they actually gravitate towards animation. They actually inherently want, like when I was, I, I keep oscillating back and forth, but for a while I was teaching HTML and CSS and they just wanted to animate everything. And I was like, oh, cool. Like <laughs> they want ownership over that space. And so now that I've like shifted back to the other end, it's like, no, we're visual designers. We just need to know enough HTML and CSS so we understand the medium we're designing for, and that's it. Now the vehicle to design those animations is sorely lacking. <laughs> I mean, I've experimented with having them do it in After Effects. 
Um, and that worked, but it, that only worked because some of them had already had prior After right. Effects experience. It's Otherwise, not an easy program to jump into. Yes. And so the other way, and so that's why I'm, I hate to get be a cheerleader and get excited about software, but that's why I'm really excited about studio Envision studio, having the built-in animation features and anima app, having that timeline plugin for sketch. I hope one of those two tools. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, <laughs> as someone who actually spent many years doing flash animations, there you go. My, the, the muscles that we're able, I'm able to communicate with, uh, in terms of talking about animation have atrophied. So, mm -hmm. um, I, look at these tools with eager eyes also and hoping that, you know, we as designers, we can um, kind of dive back into that realm and, and add that missing component to our work to ensure that that's not left to the wayside. Yeah. And I, and it not even just left to the wayside is that it's time. I, when you said about inner animations, you know, being part of the brand, definitely part of the brand, but I also kind of look at them as they're part of the hierarchy of the page. They can, they can influence the layout just if much is, if not more than, you know, like the physical layout in the space. So I, it, it's just important for design to not just kind of like think of it as an ancillary thing, but like, let's lead that out. Let's like kind of own that. And it's ours. <laughs> it's a, uh... It's true. And, and once again, how we communicate animation to our clients is going to be just as important as <laughs> yes. the, the fact that we're taking time to care about it. Um, many moons ago, I worked on a project um, at Happy Cog and uh, we had we had it was a kind of a high end is not the right word, but like a high luxury brand we were doing a small site for. And we knew what they wanted in terms of what that high end feel needed to be. Um, so our plan was to spend more time on kind of the animation earlier, showing them how the page would kind of build and flow and move than it was to actually kind of just work in static comp. So I had our developer and our designer kind of pair up mm -hmm. and create more of like a working prototype of how the, the feel of the page would, would work. And that seemed to kind of solve that problem at the time. Um, but unfortunately, those type of situations, they're kind of hard to carve off and, and find that, that you know, perfect, perfect scenario where you have a designer and developer willing to work together and, and do something like that. Well, that just again leads back. And you talked about this in the big web show, that, that agile versus waterfall. If you're working in agile, that, that tends to get that. So in, in, and this is just a side antidote, but like someday... Someday there will be no difference. I mean, someday we're going to have designers and developers like working together. It just has to happen because otherwise we're going to end up with this still kind of fragmented roll the stone a little bit further and then let somebody else take it. Um, because the way, you know, these, I think the way to do really strong interactive screen work is to have that, you know, that partnership that just you can't pry those those two roles apart. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's the design is reverted back to the day when you needed an orchestra, you know, it was, you were a conductor of an orchestra because you had typesetters, you had paste up artists, you had photographers, you had typesetters, you had all these different components that was part of the design. You had illustrators. Um, and then, you know, with the computer, it, 
kind of funneled all that, but it's funneled right back out again. <laughs> I, I've made that analogy before too. And you know, what I've described is I say the UX designer is the conductor now because there's often a lot of different roles and responsibilities that have to be accounted for. You might be working with a developer, you might be working with a researcher, you might be working with an illustrator. Um, you have to know essentially the symphony right? you're trying to create. I don't know if I'm taking the metaphor in the right way, but the idea is that you, you might not be doing all these things, but you have to understand their impact on the big picture. Yeah, no, that's, I, I'm with you on that one. All right, so just a couple more questions, just seeing where time is at. So since you are a practicing professional, you were an adjunct professor, uh, professor um, how do you suggest students get the necessary client experience? Um, specifically, I'm thinking like Mike Montero's book, Design as a Job, and you know he's out there advocating um, for that, and he's even like said things like you know design programs should be in the business schools, but I don't even know if business schools teach those skills. <laughs> yeah, what do they teach? I don't even know. I know that's why it's like I have to actually go look and see what they do to see if that would be a. I mean, it makes sense, but um, so you know, like what what do they need? You know, like what what can they do? Because again, you know, they can't produce a full blown website. So all they can do is a static mock-up, you know, a clickable prototype. Who needs that? <laughs> they need the whole thing. There's a couple ways you can go about this, yeah. I think. <clears throat> so I'm, I was scared coming out of school. Didn't know the first thing about getting a client, what you do with them when you have them. Um, didn't know anything about starting a business. That said, I think the ways in which you can do these things now and the tools available and the fact that there's this amazing internet thing that just is, you know, unbelievable. I would recommend to younger professionals jump into this sooner, take, er take more risks earlier. You might have a job, you might not have a job, but start a business for yourself. It could just be something as simple as saying, you know what, um, you know, I might be working nine to five, but in the evenings, I'm going to try to dedicate a little bit of time to just starting a business. Um, that sounds easy, but it's not actually that hard. Um, what I would do, and this is kind of how I got my start while I was working nine to five, I established, you know, essentially my own practice, cash law design without any clients. Because the thinking was that someday I might make a go of this. And when I do make a go of it, I want to feel like I'm actually, you know, not starting from scratch. And so what I did was I found one client and I just did a little bit of work for them for many years, just a little bit, nothing, nothing exciting, nothing incredibly mind blowing, but allowed me to, in a less lower risk situation, begin to feel more comfortable with this idea that I can do this work independent of some other sort of organization or some sort of agency or some sort of governing body. It's hard for students to produce full on production level stuff. So, but that's what the people need. So, I mean, I like this semester, I found a, somebody who's doing a, um, a bus tracking app and he's doing it in his own side work. So we're designing, we're redesigning his site for him. So that worked out great because he didn't, he was the developer. 
he just needed the visuals. And so that like, that worked great. But then like another semester I tried it, the person needed the visuals, but they also needed a development and we can only deliver half that material. So if I'm putting together a portfolio yeah, and I'm going to go back to this design intent to me still mm-hmm. sings the loudest. I don't, if I'm in a hiring situation, I don't need to see a final website to yeah. see the thinking you've done if you have only taken something from idea through clickable prototype. And that's okay because for somebody who is maybe just coming out of school or is kind of making that transition, they might not have the relationships. They might not have the ability to you know, look at their Rolodex and f- call their favorite WordPress developer to bring something to life. That's something that usually comes from time. Um, you know, I, I know this person because I've been working for a long time and only now am I starting to feel really comfortable with like, oh, I know, I know a person that can do this. I know a girl who does this type of work. I know a guy who does this type of work and I can kind of reach out to them to partner up on something. Being able to demonstrate that design intent, the thinking behind what you've done, uh, communicate that to me is always going to trump here's a finished product and then just stepping away and expecting somebody to understand what you've done. Yeah. So I, just a bizarre thing that popped into my head and I want to say it out loud. So it's, it's on the recording, but I just immediately thought, cause we do have an IT department. I don't know if they teach front end development or not in there, but it's worth going around and, and poking and exploring, but just like an idea of like designer developer speed dating, <laughs> like just go find a developer, just speed dating kind of thing. And just find one that you click with that you're friendly with. And just, even if you don't do anything together other than just hang out and talk. It's not a bad idea. There's probably like a meetup group you could put yeah. together just around that idea. Yeah. And just, just, just talk. That's all you have to do. All right, Chris. So, uh, before I let you go, Oh wait, nope. Previous question. So I have one new question that I've been, I want to ask. And then before I wrap things up is, so this is a new question and I'm starting to ask every single, um, guest, what piece of advice would you like to give design educators to prepare, uh, better prepare students for post graduation life. Ooh, I think I hopefully I didn't, I didn't tip my hand too much of this earlier, but that idea that you can bring the practical back into the classroom and to, to marry with, um, the, you know, the kind of blue sky work that often is, is occurring. Uh, that's, that's the first thing. And the second is that idea that you cannot expect to ever stop learning in this industry. Really, uh, I think, sh- can never be stressed enough. Um, a degree does not mean you're done um, with your schooling because it's constantly yeah. going. To, you're co- constantly going to school, everything you do. So then before I let you go, is there anything that you are working on personally that you'd like to share or something you want to promote? I'm trying to work on my my writing skills, uh, based on, you know, my kind of many years of being in this industry and some of the things I've seen and experienced, I'm trying to get some of these ideas out. Um, so I've, I've set up a, a medium account. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe my username is just cash dollar, which is my last name, last name. Um, so you can find me there. And, um, also I, I tend to, you know, my whole really, the reason I even did this type of work is because I used to love to draw and I don't draw enough anymore. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to write an article or an essay and then actually do a little bit of editorial illustration work to nice. accompany it. So that's, that's my goal with this new endeavor. That is an, that's an awesome idea just for a 
for a project for, okay, I'll, I'll, I promise I'll let you go after this one. <laughs> right. But I, I show like when students, like some of them are take like, you know, like looking at creative writing minors and stuff like that. And they're like, always oh, asking me like what course, what classes should they take? I'm like, I, I don't know what we offer in the creative writing, but I point them to a list apart. I point them to design observer. And I say like, take these two things take them to somebody over there and say, you need to write like that. <laughs> but that would be, but I could see now just like a natural kind of like something for me, like, you know, working with a little bit more with the, with the writing department and say, Hey, this is the kind of stuff we need to do. How do we do it? And that would be a great project. Just series of, okay, you write an article and you know, you illustrate the article. <laughs> <laughs> this, maybe this is an, an idea to, to back to your previous question about what um, educators should be stressing more, writing more. Yes. <laughs> I mean that, there you go. And there's really no way around it. Yeah. We, we, and, and that's like, it's, we're well aware of it and that's just students just don't like doing it. <laughs> yeah. And I think, um, that's th the struggle with that it's, one. This makes sense. And I'll, I'll stretch this out a, a little bit longer. We spend so much time as professionals these days, because we're often remote writing about the work we do, because that's often what has to live beyond your immediate contact. Um, so the idea that you can't just design something and throw it into base camp and expect it to be understood. You have to be able to articulate ultimately what's in that thing you've just made. And it has to be able to stand on its own without you necessarily being there to walk somebody through. So, in a way, maybe that's something else that can happen and start to happen in the classroom. Yeah. You don't just critique. You have to actually present. And maybe that presentation has to occur in multiple different kind of mediums. Yeah. No, that that's a good one. Because, again, the whole idea of like, I had students design... Um, it was an app and they had, but we did, we went through the whole UX process where they started, they do, they interviewed stakeholders. I mean, they did everything from like the beginning of like finding the problem that they were going to solve to interviewing people to make sure it was really a problem that they were solving all the way to the end. It's like, you've got, I mean, we're like putting the post-it notes on the wall, doing affinity mapping. And like, if you just put just this in your, the finished screens in your portfolio, you are doing an enormous disservice to Absolutely. yourself. But I really didn't. It's like the only way that I know is like you have to write. You have to write to explain to somebody because otherwise, you know, it's just it's just a screenshot. Right. And and so that drove it home from them a little bit more that your screenshot next to their screenshot, they both look good. Who's going to get the job? The one who articulated there's better. Oh, that's a great way of putting it. That's all we have time for on episode 59 of Design EDU today. I want to thank my guest, Chris Cashdollar, for being so generous with his time. I want to thank the audience for listening, and I want to thank the Design EDU today hosting sponsor DigitalOcean and CDN sponsor Fastly for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. Finally, I want to thank the AIGA and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. If you like this podcast, consider leaving a review for it in the iTunes store. To discover more about the Design EDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit the show website at designedu.today. To keep up with podcast news and show releases, you can visit the Facebook page 
and subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes or Google Play Store. Finally, if you would like to suggest topics for future episodes or give feedback, contact me through the show's email address, hello at designedu.today. Once again, thank you for listening to Design EDU Today. Today.